You can edit me all later so I sound somewhat intelligent. <laughs> I do very little editing on these <laughs> and just let you uh, dig your own hole. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Sounds good. Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we find out what a life and career in science is like from a real life born in the trenches scientist. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this week I'm joined by geneticist, biomedical scientist, and science educator, Mary McMillan. Mary, welcome Hi. to In Situ Science. Thank you. <laughs> now you've got a, a big year coming I, up. I have a huge year. So just to sum up, you've just, at the end of last year, got a Teaching Excellence Award from the University of New England. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. You are now taking part in a Curious Minds Mentorship Program. Yep. And you're a recipient of the Homeward Bound Award program thing. thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Where should we start? Uh, where do you want to start? <laughs> tell us, well, tell us about Curious Minds. Okay, yeah. And what um, it is. So Curious Minds is a mentoring program that um, goes for six months um, and it's about mentoring high school students, girls, yeah. uh, in high school that have an interest in science. So they're right. year nine, year ten girls. Yeah. Um, they've been selected from all over the country, all over Australia, and um, the program pairs them with a, a real scientist mm-hmm. um, as a mentor. And the idea is that over six months, they sort of, I guess, tell them about what it's like to work as a scientist. Um, they have to come up with some sort of small project that they do over six months. So we help them sort of with that, guide them through that process. Mm-hmm. And I guess just be someone there that can answer questions about what it's like to work in science or, you know, what subjects they might want to pursue in high school or, yeah. you know, find other opportunities for them, network them with, you know, other scientists if we can. And is yeah. a research project they're designing or do you get them in on one of your research projects? I know oh, they come up with a project themselves. Right. So it's just something small that they because they have two camps a year. So the first camp was has just been um, in December mm-hmm. and then they'll meet again, I think it's July, um, and present their little projects that they've done. So they should right. come up with something that is of interest to them. Yeah. Um, and I think these projects take on all sorts of different forms, so... Yeah, just a, something to kind of keep them motivated and keep them interested. And, yeah. Yeah. All right. And you've got your, your mentee, your I've your got going. two mentees, oh, actually. Okay. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> may have bitten off more than I can chew there, <laughs> which is not unusual. Um, yeah, two, two lovely girls, um, one in South Australia and one in Queensland. So it's all done sort of by distance. All right. You know, emails and Skype and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a one women in STEM sort of initiative. You're part of the Homeward Bound one's the other one, yeah. which is a big year-long thing. Yeah, so Homeward Bound is, is huge. Um, it's a program that was started a couple of years ago, and it's all about building leadership potential um, in women in science. So at the end, or about midway through last year, there was a, a call for applications for this year, and I looked at it and went, yeah, I could apply for that. That that could be a thing I could do. And in my usual fashion, put it off till about 10 minutes before the application's due. Uh, The truth comes out. Yeah. It's it's very true. And one part of the process of applying is is you make a little video about yourself and, you know, tell them why you should be selected for this program. And now I've seen all these other applications and the videos people made. And there were some pretty amazing productions in there. Uh, mine was literally me in my bedroom with my iPad. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Just talking at Gorilla my iPad science. on myself. Yeah. Um, so the feedback was that it was very real and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, oh gosh, this is embarrassing. Um, 
but yeah, so I ended up getting getting selected as one of um, 75 women from around the world yeah. to participate in the program for the 2018-2019, which um, is still a little bit unreal. I think I'm still pinching myself and sort of like, uh-oh. <laughs> well, what do you have to do? What have I got myself into here? So it's a year-long program where we have... The, the, well, the idea is that you go short through a lot of um, leadership training, um, sort of strategic planning, mm. uh, media training, um, get to meet all the obviously all the other participants. We have um, monthly video conferences where we all get together and have a chat. Yeah. Um, we're also going to be working in some smaller groups on projects. So we don't sort of officially start until February. So mm. um, not 100% sure what form those different projects and things will take. But yeah. it's yeah, it's all out there and there's a lot of self-reflection and yeah it's all about developing your it's not about the science it's about developing your potential as a, as a leader yeah. um, in in science yeah. uh, and then yeah at the end um so right at the end of december this year we head to argentina and then we jump on a ship and spend three weeks um traveling down through antarctica and back all right yeah <laughs> which is amazing <laughs> and what what does that entail is um, so again, just, it's it's part of the leadership program. So yeah. um, I think it's not a holiday. Though, it's not. Right? It's not. It's not a holiday. No, there's a lot of the a lot of the workshop and training is done on board. Okay. Um, so I think the idea is that you take they take you somewhere that's kind of out of everyone's comfort zone. Yeah. And completely away from the rest of your life and the rest of yeah. your world and career and everything else and leave that all behind so that you can focus completely on. Um, yeah, on yourself and, and on the program and, and what you're working through. And, and you've got a year to prepare the family for you. Get yeah. away for three weeks. <laughs> That's all right. My, my, my family's pretty used to it. Every now and then I take off for a couple of weeks on a trip somewhere and yeah. they cope, they're fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. I mean, are you looking forward to getting that specific training? I mean, other than, you know, having a neat thing on your CV, what are you hoping to get out of um, Experience. I guess it's one of those things. Like, obviously, it's a, it is, like you say, a cool thing to put in your CV. Um, everyone obviously dreams of going to Antarctica at some point, so that's a big carrot. No, I want to um, find out where the homeward bound for dudes is. I want to go to Antarctica. <laughs> Sorry, no homeward bound for dudes. <laughs> um, but I think, I guess, for me, the thing that I really want to get out of it is um, – that kind of career development side of things and learning how I can put forward my ideas and have people listen and, and want to follow that and mm. how I can put together teams to work on things and, yeah, things that will really help in my career as a scientist. Mm. It's not just about, yeah, I want to go on a boat to Antarctica because I'm pretty sure there's probably cheaper ways of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, how does it work? Do you have to, like, buy your own jackets and stuff? <laughs> uh, so you do have to pay for the program. So for the for the program and obviously the trip being part of that program, it's it's a reasonably expensive program. And it, yeah. you know when you apply for it that it is it has to be self-funded. So you've got to fund your own way. You've got to fund your own way, which is kind of, I guess, part of the challenge of the whole program is, is mm. it challenges you and makes you get out of your comfort zone yeah. to go and find some sponsorship or to find ways that you can um, you know, crowdfund fund or source funding yeah. to, to support you on that. So it's a little bit of a part of the program in a way mm. is, is getting you to do that. Um, probably if you don't want it badly enough that you're going to go and do those things, then <laughs> probably not really the program, <laughs> program for you. So yeah, that's that's probably my first challenge is figuring out my funding plan and how yeah. I'm going to actually Have you got a plan yet? <laughs> um, I have 
starts of a start of a plan. <laughs> well, yeah, he only just got offered the, the award. Right? That's, <laughs> so. that's right. It's, it's, it's very early in the year now, and, and it's one of those things that I've got to sit down now at the start yeah. of the year and go, okay, how can I do this? But, I mean, anyone listening wants to, <laughs> wants to throw a bucket of money at me, I'd be quite happy to take that. <laughs> start up a Kickstarter to get married to Antarctica, I don't know. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> No, it's, 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 yeah, it's a tricky situation because you, you don't want to just go around asking people for money. Mm. Um, you want to have something of value that you can give back to them. Yeah. Um, if they're willing to put in to support you, you want to be able to pay that back somehow. So Bring I don't just want to go around. Snowball. I don't know. What you... <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what form that takes, but yeah. I feel like, yeah, it's, it's kind of rude to just go around going, Hey, just give me some money so I can do this thing for me. Yeah. Um, I want to make something where, yeah, people get something back out mm. of that contribution that they they make so i'll figure that out yeah if you've got any ideas i'm happy to hear them <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find my own stuff at the moment so <laughs> i know i'm keen well, on ideas as well <laughs> one of the one of the challenges in science isn't it it's always where's the money going to come from yeah to do this? yeah so so can, i want to ask about women in stem yes i'm obviously not one of those and there's lots of these initiatives and and programs that i'm just not privy to yeah and i was talking in a couple of podcasts ago to kate umbers who's part of the superstars of stem program which is a similar sort of uh, year-long leadership mentoring program program. and what we talked about is we've her and i both came from the same sort of field and have honestly been a little bit sheltered from gender issues in science animal behavior field we are in is quite gender balanced and a little bit progressive yeah. and things. Is, is how have you felt that as part of your career has it been something you've been aware of or felt affected by um i think in much the same way in in my field well in biology in general there mm. is a lot more balance between yeah. women and men um i think the, the place where i realize it most is yes there are a lot of women in those areas, yeah. but it's looking at the higher levels. It's mm. looking at leadership roles, and it's looking at you know, man- you know, some of those higher levels within institutions, and that's yeah. where you don't see so many women. So even though I was, I guess, even as a student, I wasn't really that aware of it because you know, I was studying mostly biology. There were heaps of women in my classes. I had mm. lecturers that were women, but then getting into academia and, and having a job, looking around, I'm like, yeah, I've got a lot of female colleagues, but as you start to look up higher levels throughout many different organizations and those leadership positions, that's where you start to see mm-hmm. that disappearing and you're still very male-dominated much mm-hmm. of the higher levels. So I think that's one of the, the, the things with women in STEM, everyone's like, we, we, need, we need to get more women interested in STEM. And I don't think it's that women aren't necessarily interested um, in STEM. We're seeing more women and girls coming into it. It's keeping them there. Mm. is the problem it's that leaky pipeline you sort of yeah. get through to a certain level and then all the women are disappearing and at the higher levels you've got yeah because i mean when i went back and looked at my old you know, undergraduate student lists it was a majority of women yeah and I, I guess in your field it probably there's a lot of women are attracted to those kind of fields i think if you go to you know computer science and maths mm. and some of those other areas you have the complete opposite yeah and it is that shift as mm. in the student stage if anything, it's shifted the other way, but people drop off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you th- that in you're having more men at these higher levels? Do you think that's a historical thing, or is it you know, a biological childbearing sort of thing? Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about? I think it's a, I think it's a cultural thing mm. in, in academia in a way. 
in academia there's this pressure to work. You know, mm. it's, it's sort of also almost a competition: who can work the most hours, who can, yeah. who can you know, sleep the least and, and work the most. Yeah. And that's not a helpful culture for people who are trying to raise families, yeah. and for women particularly. And um, taking career breaks to have to have kids and to come back after that, it's mm. that's tough. And there's a lot of women that just don't ever get really back into it after being out and having and having kids. And yeah. I think there's sort of there are definitely some inbuilt biases that yeah. we're becoming more aware of. Yeah. Um, you'll see heaps of stories lately coming out. People are you know, starting to study these things more. And even things like reference letters that get written for women. Mm. The language when people are writing a reference for men versus a reference for women. The yeah. language that's used is, is completely different. Um, so, yeah, I think there's these really there's still ingrained biases yeah. that we have that we've got a long way to go to overcome those. And to be honest, it's an issue for you know, the men in these partnerships as well because of the assumption that men don't need paternity leave yeah, and that men yeah. will you know, take up the, and even, uh, the money-earning sort of position yeah. and, and having to, you know, if you're a guy that's in a relationship with a scientist, you're expected to be the person that works yeah. harder than anyone else to yep. maintain that going. And, you know, I don't want to be... Yeah, yeah, you hit this, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about it. It's just down to who wants to work the most. Yeah, you know, I'm happy being a productive scientist, but to be competitive and to continue on, you've got to give up. You've got to give up something. A lot, yeah, or, or a lot <laughs> of things. And that could mean your relationship yeah. with your children. And, and yeah, I, I, I get it. There is like that, and that's what I mean about that whole cultural thing. It's there's there's sort of biases against women, but there's also expectations yeah. placed on men. Um, you know, I've, I've overheard colleagues that have male colleagues that have children, and it's like, oh, are you, oh, you're babysitting the kids today, are you? You know, like they're not babysitting; they're parenting. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's something that women is expected that women do, yeah. but men can be, I guess, you know, looked at a bit odd yeah. when they're taking time off to look after the kids, and it's a society thing. Mm. I know if, if something happens to my son at preschool. I know who they call, and it's not my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and I, most of the time, I'm like, "Yeah, call call him. He'll 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 deal with it. I'm busy." Yeah. So it, it is really that kind of ingrained thing. Mm. That, uh, and even from a really young age, <laughs> yeah. My son's he's five now. When he was four, he told me that I couldn't be a doctor because I was a girl. <laughs> Which we had a very long discussion in about, uh, about in the car afterwards. Yeah. Because a good twenty minutes drive to preschool, and he now knows girls can do whatever they want, <laughs> including doctors. Um, but yeah, so for a four-year-old to say that, it's obviously a, a bigger issue in. Society, yeah, there's you know. something very deep and ingrained and stuff. And do you think that uh, getting in at the younger ages is having an impact? I mean, there's constant girls in STEM, girls in maths, yeah, sort of um, initiatives. No, do you think we'll see the effects of that? I hope that we will. 20, 20 um, years from now? I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit... I'm not sure. I'm not sure mm. how much we'll see. Um, I think as much as we need to focus on saying, telling girls that they can do these things and these things are for them, we also need to focus on telling boys and, and overcoming those stereotypes for boys where you know they're looking going, oh, that's a boy's job or that's a girl's job. You know, yeah. It's no good just to focus on girls and saying, you can do this. Mm. We need to focus on everyone saying... Yeah. Anyone can do this. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, one of the things I was, I'm afraid to talk about as a, you know, white, straight, cis, English-speaking <laughs> male in society 
you know, and there's things that you're almost afraid to talk about because it's not you know, politically correct. And yeah. one of the things I wondered was about the Girls in STEM sort of initiatives. They're great and they're very visible. Yeah. And it's almost like we're just not talking about boys. And, and at, at a demographic level, that makes yeah. sense. At an individual level, I wonder what it's like to be a, a nine-year-old boy in, yeah, I really interested have in science no, or the no movement. experience on that one <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it, it is interesting because I've had a few conversations with with some of you know my younger um, male colleagues recently, and they're like, "Oh, it's so unfair! There's so many programs for women in STEM. I want to do these cool things. You get to go and do all these cool things. I want to do these cool things." And they're like, "I get it. Like, I get why." Yeah. But I'm like, "Oh, I'm so jealous still." So yeah. <laughs> I think it is kind of probably also a bit tough on on the guys at the moment <laughs> in science. Yeah, I mean, knowing that it's the right thing to do and looking at you know sort of the demographic yeah. yeah, no, I mean, they're not saying they're not saying it's wrong. Doesn't change your things. subjective experience yeah. of going through life. They're and, mostly you know. just jealous that they that they are programs that they can't apply for. Yeah, it's totally. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying that they're they're saying it's that it's wrong that women are being supported and their opportunities <laughs> are being uh, out there for women. But they're they're just like, man, I'm really jealous that there's all this really cool stuff happening for for girls and women at the moment. So we should probably talk about your actual science. <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we can do that. <laughs> but you're now part of the brain behavior research group yeah. here at UNE. So I did uh, my, well, in day-to-day life, I did what you'd call stalking, but if you have a podcast, it's called research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and your research group does something which sounds, sounds epic, and I want to know how it works. It's essentially okay. looking at sort of biological correlates of uh, depression and people on the autism uh, spectrum. Yeah, I mean, yeah. things like depression and autism, they are huge, they... uh, hard-to-define categories <laughs> yeah yeah well that's kind of why we're working on it yeah. um it's a really it's a really cool group um when i first um got my job here i i had been working on sort of been a molecular biologist you know slash geneticist for a while mm. um had been working on completely different things and when i started here um i got invited to to join the group because they needed somebody with some more molecular skills to mm. sort of round out the, the group. So it's a really cool group because we've got um, everyone from psychologists to neuroscientists to immunologists and geneticists and molecular biologists all mm. working together um, on projects, which is really nice. Mm. Um, yeah, so major focus here at UNE is on looking at depression because um, depression is a huge problem. They're, we're looking now at somewhere estimating around one in six to one in seven people at some point in their lives going to be suffering from major depression. Mm. So that's a heck of a lot of people. Um, problem is that even though we have some treatments, they're not very effective. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit hit and miss at the yeah. moment. You sort of, the way, I mean, I don't know how much you know about depression and how it's diagnosed, but you, you know, you basically go to your GP and it's a, a self-reporting survey mm. that you do that. Um, and you sort of get the results. And as a result of that, you're sort of either labeled as depressed or not depressed um, for the people who have depression there's different treatment options but it's a little bit hit and miss as to what actually works it's mm. very very individual what seems to work for different people so two people can look very similar in terms of you know their their symptoms but the same medication might work for one and not work for the other mm. so there's a lot of hit and miss in trying to get something that actually works for individual people so what we want to do is try and individualize that 
a lot more mm. by looking at the way we diagnose depression and then based on that, how we can treat it hopefully a bit more effectively. Mm. Um, so what we want to do is go, okay, well, if you went to the doctor, you get a blood test for something like diabetes. Mm. Why can't we go to the doctor and get some blood tests or something to have a look at what's actually happening in our brains and you know, yeah. um, whether there are different indicators of depression. So together um, with this group, we are looking at all sorts of different aspects of depression. So we're looking at impact, well, I'm looking at um, influence of um, certain genetic variants. So we have samples from all of these people from all over um, our, our region. Um, so I've got DNA samples, so I can look at different genes and see whether there are certain variants in certain genes that are correlated with people having mental health issues. Uh, we're looking at blood, so we're looking at measuring levels of, of different signaling molecules in blood to see whether there's some that are elevated or some that are decreased mm. or changed in people that are, that are having depression. Um, there's been guys doing work with looking at um, brain patterns and EEGs and stuff. So hopefully the idea is that we can put all this information together and group people not just as having depression or not, but mm. what type of depression they might have. Mm. Because we know that there's different subtypes and those subtypes might respond very, very differently to different treatment. Well, what so are we, we the can... subtypes? Now, this is where you need to talk to our like, psychologist because <laughs> I'm the lab rat, I don't really... <laughs> uh, not really up on my subtypes, so I'd have to, I have to look up the, yeah. the different ones. <laughs> um, but different subtypes seem to involve different pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, like messaging pathways and thing, signaling pathways in, in the brain. Yeah. So if we can sort of pinpoint more accurately what maybe type of depression people have, then we could better choose a treatment that would work for them. For some types of depression, it looks like medication does not much where they need you know, like some actual therapy, mm-hmm. whereas others are treated really more effectively with different types of medications. So if we can figure out by looking at all of these different aspects of a person mm-hmm. where they fit better, then we can probably treat them more effectively and that's going to be a good thing. So as the molecular person on yeah. this team, yep. I mean, what sort of, are we talking about changes in gene expression with depression? Um, what actual? Not, we, we haven't been measuring changes in gene expression. We were looking at actually at changes in DNA, so different variations within certain genes. So genes that are code for um, different receptors in the brain, for example. Mm. We know that there is natural variation within all of these genes, mm-hmm. but sometimes there's been different studies looking at different genes and going, okay, people who have this variant are more likely to have depression than okay, people who so have So we're actually looking variant. at things so like predispose you to... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ooh. So, yeah, not just, um, I guess, diagnosis, but also looking at risk factors as well. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah, very much a lab rat and I you know, play with all the, the spit and the blood and all those kind of things. <laughs> and then I send all my data off to, to the rest of the team who make sense of all the, you know, in terms of all the psychological factors that go along with that. They, yeah. Yeah. That's going to be scary, though, thinking that you, you could be hardwired for a particular condition that we, we view as psychological. Yeah, well, there's sort of... Studies that have been done in the past, they're estimating that around about 40% of depression is heritable, it's genetic. And that's why we see depression run in families. Mm. So as soon as you see things running in family groups, you kind of go, hang on, there might be some sort of genetic component to this. Yeah. So they're estimating that our genes contribute maybe about 40% to whether we become depressed or not. So mm. put a person with those susceptibility factors in the wrong situation, they're more likely to become depressed than somebody who has different genes yeah yeah it's also raises sort of questions about your treatment things like antidepressants are kind of 
controversial sometimes as to when yeah. they're best used as yep. opposed to just therapy. Yeah. The fact that it might not simply be a, a therapy issue and that there can be some sort of Yeah, there can actually be biological reasons yeah. for people to be depressed. And I think that's one of the reasons why it would be so fantastic if we, if we could come up with some sort of blood tests and things that people could do to help mm. look at whether they're predisposed to or are depressed because that can take away some of that stigma. Mm. I think with depression, it's one of those things still that people don't talk about much. There's a, there's a lot of stigma around having mental health conditions. Mm. It's just like having any other health condition. It's a condition. We can treat it or try and manage it. Mm. Um, we should be talking about it in just the same way as, you know, if someone turns up and they've got a broken leg, mm. we all say, oh, look, I'm sorry, you've got a broken leg and we'll make accommodations to help you get around. Yeah. We don't do the same for mental health conditions and yeah. we really should. I think. I don't know. As soon as you said there's actually you know, biological things that predispose you to it, it then gets my evolutionary biology brain thinking, <laughs> where have these genes then come from? Has yeah. there been some sort of selective pressures for them? Or is it just random variation? Yeah, is it... I don't know. That's, that's, that's a really good question. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, the leader of our group, he talks about depression as being a, a normal response. Like with animals, if, if an animal's yeah. sick, what do they do? They, they hide themselves away, they sort of don't eat, they don't groom themselves mm. until they get over whatever the, the problem is. And for people, it's the same thing. It can be a protective response. Mm. Something really bad's happened. It makes sense that we would do the same sort of thing and, and as, if we, as if we had an illness and sort of hide away and mm. shut down for a bit. It's when that goes on too long that it becomes a problem. So it's sort of a normal response. Really. And if you don't, you're a sociopath. Yeah, <laughs> so if you don't have that response, you'd probably be more worried. Yeah. <laughs> Things go really bad. But it's when that response happens but then lasts too long. You know, yeah. It's it's a, probably a good protective mechanism for us to to have that response, but you don't want to be, you know, hiding away for what yeah. years, not and being able to talk to anyone and look after yourself. So. <laughs> well, I noticed that the research group itself is actually stated specifically that they're focusing on regional and rural communities and the yeah. role that the, the, your actual place and community can play in these factors. Yeah, and I guess that that's because we, we are in this regional area, yeah. so it makes sense to have that focus. Um, there's also studies showing that the incidence of mental health conditions can be more prevalent in rural communities. And people tend to, I think, particularly in rural regional communities, farming communities, um, be less open about talking about it, less mm. open to seeking help, um, less, you know, less open to going to the doctor and talking about that kind of thing. So, yeah, so there's a bit of a focus on regional communities because mm. it, it is a really big problem in regional communities. Um, and if we could change that and help to fix that, that would be good start. Mm. And but so it also makes sense for us where we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, because you have in your career path has managed to do the, the, the holy grail, the thing that we're all told as science students is impossible. You've managed to stay in the one place yeah. for a lot of your career. The thing that people, okay, maybe the thing that some people say is impossible and other people have told me is basically career suicide, um, <laughs> which I'm going to disagree about, at least yeah. for now. Um, but yeah, well, there's this thing, right? You do your degree and then you're supposed to leave, preferably, if you're in Australia, you're preferably supposed to go overseas somewhere to do yeah. at least one, if not two or three postdocs in, in different countries. And 
um, you know, then you might be lucky enough to be in a position to apply for an academic, mm. uh, you know, continuing job somewhere. Um, yeah, I didn't do that at all. <laughs> and I, it was all part of the plan, I, I mean, right? I, I, I did go 20 minutes down the road um, to do my PhD uh, at the CSIRO. So that was, a, you know, that was a big drive every day. Mm. <laughs> um, but, like, I don't... I don't think that's preventing me from doing a good job of what I'm doing. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's a totally different attitude to most other workplaces on the planet where sticking with the one company's yeah. loyalty and shows yeah. how I know, reliable a worker you are and how people can things. put up with you. And Weird things in academia. Where have you been and what have you done and who? Yeah. You know, which big institution have you been at? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I never planned any of it. Anyway, so <laughs> didn't really actually know that was a thing, but it, it's all just kind of fallen into place for me. Mm. So I did my did my bachelor's degree um, and my honours degree here, and then I was like, oh, okay, better get a job because that's what you do when you finish, <laughs> finish uni. Um, so I started applying for jobs, and that was going pretty slowly. And then I saw in the local paper uh, an ad for a PhD scholarship uh, mm. at the CSIRO, and I was like. Okay, I got first class on us. I could, yeah. I could do that. That's that's fine. So I applied for it, and um, then they called me and said, "Yeah, we want you." Which I, which point I sort of frantically googled what is a PhD and how to <laughs> how to do one. <laughs> um, so that was a good start. Um, so I did that, and you know, three years later, I was like, "Okay, finishing that." Um, also, submitted my thesis and had my son two weeks later because timing <laughs> okay. is everything. They give you a solid deadline, I guess. <laughs> That's, that was a very solid deadline. And I thought, well, I'll take a little time off to, you know, raise a kid. That'll be that'll be cool. Um, I had sort of planned to take a year off um, and then I started looking. I thought I'll take a year off and I'll start, in, in that time I'll start looking for postdocs and I was, I was doing the traditional thing and I was looking overseas for different postdocs and doing a few interviews and things. Um, but then... Somebody, he resigned and they needed somebody to come and, and fill in on a fixed-term contract to do some lecturing. And because I was around and they knew I'd mm. finished my PhD and I was still doing some casual work, they said, do you want to do, do that? Mm. Which was pretty awesome because at that point, my son was like five months old and staying home with a baby and no adult company was killing me. <laughs> so I was very, very happy um, to take them up on that offer and... Yeah, that contract turned into another casual contract, which turned into another fixed-term contract, and then eventually a position got advertised, which I applied for and, and got. So I stayed. Yeah. And I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's got to be really important for your basics of living, for maintaining friends and family connections. It is, and, and I guess I was in a little bit of a different position to some people who, are, when they're finishing their studies, they you know they, they maybe have a partner or they might be single, you know, maybe not have any kids, that sort of thing. You're a little bit more free then, I think, to do whatever you want and go wherever mm. you want. Um, whereas for me, we, we had built a house here. I had my son. My husband had a job here. Mm. There wasn't really any really any incentive to leave. Yeah. It was, yeah we would stay as, as long as we could. Yeah. The only incentive to leave would be if I got a really good position yeah. somewhere else. So it actually just, by accident, worked out <laughs> really well. So, yeah. I, I, and I admit that I'm really, really fortunate and this kind of thing doesn't happen to most yeah, people. Yeah, it's a shame you're almost sort of, not forced to, but your arm's twisted into not setting roots. Yeah, for a lot of people. And until I mean, you have I, a permanent position. 
I follow heaps of people on, on social media and things and I'm looking at these people and I'm like, these guys are like way smarter than me, way more accomplished <laughs> than me and they still haven't got those permanent jobs anywhere mm. and I just, I'm so lucky that what happened for me did happen. And, and you're obviously very good at your job and a nice person <laughs> to work with and all that stuff. Totally awesome at my job. <laughs> so you no, were, but, you know, I do, I do look at some people and just go, how do these people not have, you know, not have jobs? And it yeah. does seem really unfair that there's so many really, really clever and motivated and just outstanding people out there finishing yeah. PhDs and finishing postdocs and then there's not necessarily the jobs for them to step into and that's... Slightly Especially depressing. The, the position you were in where you're on a string of short-term contracts. Yeah, yeah. Lots of people are in that position hoping that yeah. it will culminate in a permanent position yeah. like it did for you. But like it did, yeah. It so it was two years of, of contract work mm. um, before I got a job. But every, it was sort of like every time one contract was ending, the next thing appeared. Yeah. And that was, that was really just the right place at the right time. Yeah. More and you also else. weren't always a biomedical type person. I've, you know, I've done a few different things. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've got your genetics, molecular lab skill stuff. Yeah. And you were always told that that's a great skill to have because it's really applicable to everything. And you've applied it to plants and livestock and people and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Is it I, really that easy to jump back and forth? I sort of say that I'm a bit of a jack of all trades and master of none in yep. a way. Um, <laughs> so I started off with, in my honours year, I was, I was looking at fungal genetics. Mm. Um, so that was sort of where I got my basis in, in genetics. And then my PhD um, was in stem cell biology in cattle, so characterising spermatogonial stem cells in cattle, which everyone likes to laugh about. Um, and then when I first started here as an academic on, on short-term contracts, obviously there was no way I could set up my own lab or anything like that. Mm. So I kind of just had to fit in with some other research that was happening. And unfortunately, one of the academic staff here, who's a soil microbiologist, um, could use me and use mm. my skills. So yeah, I started working on some soil microbiology. Um, but again, it's all molecular skills. And then obviously since then, working now with the brain behavior research group on, on depression in humans. Mm. So yeah, we've, we've done fungi and cows and soil and people. <laughs> but it's the same skills that can be applied across all of those things. Yeah. Uh, so having really good lab skills and, and the ability to, to troubleshoot assays if things aren't working and just the ability to, to pick up new assays and you know the basics so you can yeah. pick things up quite quickly. I mean, was that an intentional skill that you wanted to learn career-wise? Intentional, no. <laughs> Nothing I've done is intentional. It's, no. all just, it's all just been more by chance. No, I when I first came to uni, I, I really had no idea. I was interested in science. And I grew up in a really small town. Mm. Um, the only things that I knew I could do with a science-y sort of degree was to be like a doctor or a vet mm. or a forensic scientist because I'd watched way too much CSI. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to be. Yeah. And then my first year, I sat in a biology class and I had this fantastic lecturer who taught us... Um, the genetics and, and molecular biology. Mm. And it just made sense to me. Yeah. She would tell us these concepts, you know, this is DNA, this is its structure, this is what it does, you know, transcription and translation, and, and, and this is, you know, all the things we can do to manipulate DNA. And I just went, that's really cool. Mm. And it kind of made sense to me. Like, put me in a chemistry class, I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> but sit there and, and talk to me about DNA and, and what we could do with it. 
it just made sense in my head. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I stuck with her and did my honours with her in her lab because yeah. that was the stuff that made sense to me. So I just kind of fell in love with it through, yeah, learning about different aspects of, of science in my, in my bachelor's degree. And so once you've got some of those skills, it's kind of logical to just keep going down that pathway. Well, it's a wonderful so, sort of reminder of that great majesty of life that we all share the same genetic code yeah but you can just use the same you tweak a lab little bit kit. and you've got a banana or you've got yeah, a human it's, it's all the same <laughs> four letters just in a slightly different order yeah yeah but you keep mentioning amazing. all this career stuff just sort of falling into your lap and happening accidentally is that why your instagram account <laughs> is called that, the accidental scientist exactly it is because it was never yeah it was never really a plan um, on yeah, like I said, growing up in a small town, mm. liked science at school, but even then, um, I, yeah, I did chemistry and physics in high school. I didn't do biology of all the sciences. But I, <laughs> the one that I now work in is the one that I did not study in high school. Yeah, I almost failed high school biology. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I did physics and chemistry, and the physics and chemistry classes were dominated by boys. Yeah. There was only a couple of girls in in each of those classes, and I knew I had to do those um, to get into uni. Mm. So I had at least, not because anyone told me, but I just went, oh, I might want to go to university one day. What do you need to do to do a science degree? Yeah. So you needed to do physics and chemistry. And everyone do physics and chemistry <laughs> so you can get into your science degree. You'll find it a lot easier. Um, but, yeah, there was no one. Like, my parents are not university educated. Mm-hmm. Um, none of my um, brother or sisters are particularly academically inclined, which is which is fine. We all have really different lives and very different skills um so i was the odd one out mm. and um i didn't really have anyone to to tell me or give me any advice on what to do or how to get or what sort of jobs they were mm. um, if someone had told me when i was in high school that i'd i would be a, a university an academic at a university well first of all i didn't even know that was a thing yeah. i don't know who i thought was going <laughs> to teach me when i got to university but that was not a thing it was like options were really you know vet forensic scientist doctor that was yeah. If you were a scientist, that's what you could do. Mm. So the yeah, coming to uni, it opened up that whole new world of there's a whole lot of jobs you can do as a scientist. Yeah. So much stuff that you can do. <laughs> <laughs> so things that I never knew existed. Yeah. Um, which is part of why I wanted to do the the Curious Minds program that we were talking about earlier, is because I would have loved to have as a student in year nine or year ten to have someone that I could actually talk to, who could give me some sort of advice I'm about. Show you the reality. Would have been of fantastic. It. Yeah. Would have been perfect. I just muddled my way through on my own. and Like, my family's really supportive, but they couldn't help me. So, <laughs> I mean, I still remember being in, at uni, and I think it was in my second year, and I loved genetics in my first year, so I thought I'll enroll in all the genetics units in second year, and I enrolled in a, a population genetics class, and I got there, and I was like, oh, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> but I didn't know how to get out of it, mm. how to unenroll or anything like that, because I had no one to talk to. Mm. So I just did it anyway. <laughs> and then yeah, it was like, oh, what do, you, what do you do now? You've got to get a job. Oh, maybe I'll just do a PhD. I don't know what that is, but that's fine. I can, I can do that and I'll be a doctor. That'll be great. So in hindsight, it would have been really fantastic to have someone to give you just a little bit of advice and go, hey, these are what these things are and this is how it works. Yeah. Then you're probably going to have to watch yourself around your mentees that you don't just turn around and say, none of this matters. <laughs> Just, just wing it. Just do whatever you want. Everything will turn out fine. And one yeah. day someone will give you a job. <laughs> or just probably, the idea that, you know, not, not around that time advice. of your life in high school, you think everything you do is going to so have important. huge impacts yeah. on your later life, but it doesn't really. Yeah. 
but, but you know, even now, uh, you know, as as new colleagues join, and you know, I've got some younger colleagues, and they're like, oh, you know, what sort of advice can you give me? And I'm like, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> we'll be fine. Just, just just wing it, and everything will work out all right in the end. <laughs> it's probably not the best career advice for young scientists. Don't no. do that. <laughs> Plan things. <laughs> Title for the episode: Just wing it, and everything will be fine. That's <laughs> pretty much my philosophy it's, it's worked out okay for me but it's probably not not the ideal uh, way to approach a career <laughs> might be a good idea to have some sort of plan in place I, yeah well if people want to follow your your roller coaster career you're on instagram i the, am yes accidental scientist yep and you're you can on see pictures of my my cute kid and occasional <laughs> and occasional sciencey things <laughs> and you're on twitter as well yes yes mary, uh, e. mary McMillan? e mcmillan yes all yes, right. if you just follow Mary McMillan, that is somebody else. And every now and then she gets tagged in things for me, which is slightly awkward. There's an E in there. I had a guy ring me up from Ireland saying, I keep getting your emails. <laughs> ah, <oops>. <laughs> <laughs> he just wanted to let me know I had a meeting booked in <laughs> that I didn't well, know about. Well, that was nice. That was really nice of you, know you had a meeting. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, yeah, no, people can follow me on those things. I'm, I'm again... It's random rambling thoughts every now and then. Um, and well, and hopefully there'll be uh, pictures of icebergs and yes. stuff soon. Yeah, you just need to wait 12 months and then you'll, there'll be some pictures yeah. of hopefully icebergs and penguins and all sorts of cool stuff. We'll check in again and, and this yeah. time next year and yeah. hear your stories. Hopefully I'll make it back okay. <laughs> I won't freeze to death. I don't like the cold. I just realized this is a really bad idea. <laughs> I'm, not, yeah. I'm not good in the cold, so yep. Antarctica, great idea that was. Just wing it, Mary. <laughs> yes. You'll have fun. <laughs> Just wing it, it'll all work out in the end. Yeah. New motto for life. All right, good take home message for the podcast. <laughs> all right, well, thanks for coming on, Mary. Ah, thanks for the chat. Thank you guys for listening. Check us out at Institute Science or on social media or InstitutScience.com. Make sure to subscribe, drop us an iTunes review, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.